0: America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. John Adams. Episode 10, Richie's American Story. Richie Angel is in his final semester at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, where he is the chapter president for the Federalist Society. After taking the bar exam this summer, he will begin working as a criminal prosecutor for the Orange County District Attorney's Office. Richie writes a monthly article for the Federalist Society and co-founded a conservative blog, The New Guards, in 2017. Richie met his wife at a mission reunion while the two were attending Brigham Young University, and they have three children under four. As a child, Richie won awards for acting, musical performance, and ballroom dance. Richie enjoys watching, ranking, and reviewing movies, and he is a bigger Star Wars fan than you. Welcome to today's podcast episode. I have Richie Angel, and I am very grateful that he agreed to be a guest on We the People, Our American Story. Richie, can we begin by you sharing a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. And you can tell me uh, whatever you want to hear about me, but I'm attending the University of California at Irvine, the law school there. I'm in my third and final year, heading into my last semester. Um, I'm married to my wonderful wife, we have three kids. I enjoy watching movies, uh, watching hockey. The hockey season just started up again. So that was great. Other than that, the Anaheim Ducks lost their first game, which wasn't so great. Love Star Wars, love cartoons, love anything on Disney+. Plus.
0: When did you first get an interest in American history?
1: You know, it's hard to say because I think it happened before I started forming memories, honestly. My mom was very passionate about uh, the Constitution not that she necessarily understood everything in it. Um, And when she studied it, she wanted us to study it with her. Like she wasn't the teacher we were learning together, but she felt very deeply that it was an inspired document. She took it seriously when, you know, Ezra Taft Benson, who was the president of of our church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when he had said multiple times, the constitution is akin to revelation. So we kept copies of the Constitution with our scriptures when we were growing up. When we would have family scripture study, we would occasionally read from the Constitution together. Um, And so it was always just on par there for me. You know, we would occasionally read from Skousen's books about American history and things like that. It was just always a part of us. And then at various times throughout my life, I may, you know, may have gotten more interested in current events, started listening to Glenn back when I was about 14, started, you know, debating when I was going to college and... I think really the moment that it settled in that this was something that I cared deeply about was when I started going to college, Um, I think it was about a sophomore, maybe even my freshman year, I started hearing for the first time people who really hated America. Um, And I had always just taken for granted, this is a wonderful place. This is the place that we love. Um, It's a place that gives us our freedom or that respects our freedom. When I was growing up, we would sing Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. Like that was just part of me. And for the first time in my life, I started hearing people who hated America, who wanted to watch it all crumble. And that was different than, you know, I grew up in California. I'm used to being in the political minority, right? But Republicans and Democrats alike can still respect the country and what it stands for while pursuing different policies. It wasn't that. It was people who genuinely hated this country. And that was the first time that it really struck that chord in me that, no, this was something that I really needed to defend. This is something that I care about, and you, you can't just talk that way about this country. It blew my mind that people felt so strongly the other way. It, it, it awoke that fire in me.
0: Do you remember, was there a time that you felt very proud of America? A time where it was maybe the first time that you really felt like America was a blessed place?
1: I would probably have to go back to 9-11 for that one. I was six years old when 9-11 happened. I can remember the exact time I woke up that morning. I can remember seeing my mom sitting at the foot of the bed, watching the TV. I have virtually no other memories from that time of my life. I remember that day crystal clear. And I remember the aftermath of that. I remember the frequent chanting of USA, USA. I remember a couple of years later, I'm a hockey fan, you know, doubly important. You got hockey and you got USA and, uh, seeing those uniforms, hearing those stories about what it meant in that time frame to be proud of America. And again, hearing the chants of USA, USA. I, I think it was around that window of my life that I really started feeling like this is a special place. I didn't even know why it was special. Like I said, we, we read from the constitution occasionally when I was growing up. I didn't understand a word of it, but I knew, it was, I knew there was truth to it. Just like I knew when I was reading the scriptures and believed in Christ. I knew there was something to that too. And maybe I couldn't explain it to as a six year old, but I felt something and it was important to me. And, and to me, they've always just been on a similar level.
0: What law are you going into?
1: Criminal law. Criminal. So I, I've been interning at the Orange County District Attorney's office um, and I've been hired to start there after I take the bar this July. So I've interned on the sexual assault unit, uh, on the gangs unit, I've done misdemeanors and some of the early parts of uh, more generic felonies. I would love to work more on homicide cases. I I like the really serious big ones where, you know, there's a lot more at stake, where the suffering that has happened to the victim is much greater. Uh, You have less of a moral dilemma in throwing the book at the defendant, you know, kind of go in with all the evidence that you have and, and knowing yeah, this is a bad guy and we need to do something about this and all those moral qualms about what if he didn't do it and what if we don't have enough evidence, they kind of go out the window because at that point, you you know what's going on and someone really needs to uh, be held to answer for that crime. So I, I enjoy the bigger ones, the, more, the ones that make people make the faces that you just made uh, when you heard about my desires to work homicide. <laughs> um, the ones where I get stories at work that I come home and do not tell my wife about because they're horrifying I, I like that side. of it.
0: I'm curious, studying criminal law and having real-life experiences in this area, what has it taught you about the people or the country in general?
1: I mean, for one thing, you see the worst of people when you're reading about or, or living these cases, right? The kinds of things that people are capable of capable of doing to one another, capable of doing to a five-year-old child, capable of committing these evil, heinous acts. Um, But at the same time, I don't know, I've never quite felt as strongly as when I'm studying criminal law that this is such a small minority of people, that this is out of the ordinary. Most people are not like this. In an odd way, it actually gives me more hope for the country because I know that everyone understands that these things are horrible. I've also worked in criminal defense, during law school, and to see the defense attorneys who will say, you know, in public, my, def- my client is innocent, and how can you do this to my client, and this is a travesty of justice, and behind closed doors, they'll say, my client, I don't know how I'm going to defend this person, he's so obviously guilty, everyone knows, right, but it has also showed me the side of people that makes them, I don't know, the, the loyalty to the system, right, the devotion that we all have to making sure that rights are being upheld, without due process rights in this country, we have nothing, Right? I don't want to work in criminal defense, but I have the utmost respect for those who do, who are able to stomach it. It's not something that I would enjoy doing, but we need them so much. In fact, the first time I ever felt like, uh, it didn't necessarily make me want to be a lawyer, but it was the first time that I thought, wow, the law is a noble and good profession, was after the Boston Massacre. No one wanted that job. and In fact, a lot of people criticized John Adams very heavily for defending them, and he defended them so well. That he got most of them off, uh, cleared of all charges. That was a noble thing. People have to be willing to stand up and do it, even if you think the person's guilty, especially if you think the person's guilty. You have to be willing to defend their rights. Um, and at the same time, everyone working together, doing their job properly, the system's going to maintain its structure and everyone's rights are going to be maximized. That's the only way that it works. I've learned a lot about about people and about the system and about just the I guess the framework and and how important it is for everyone to do their job properly, to know what their job is so that they can do it properly. And in that way, keep the Republic functioning.
0: It's such an important part of our legal system. You're innocent until proven guilty. It's huge. Absolutely. You talked about the constitution, about how important it was to your mom and how it made you understand how vital it is without it we wouldn't be here. Let's talk about the Constitution, Richie. What do you want to talk about as far as that goes?
1: Well, how much time do you have? We could be (laughs) here for days. I love talking about the Constitution. Let's Uh, talk
0: about the Electoral College.
1: Let's do it. The, The Electoral College, I like to call it the infamous Electoral College. Everyone has an opinion on it. Very few people understand it, understand it in the sense of knowing how it works. The Electoral College is unlike anything that anyone had ever created in a system of government much like you know the entire Virginia plan was that we have this the separation of powers and the three branches of government that are not quite co-equal but almost co-equal that we have the bicameral legislature and the the way that it was all set up was so revolutionary pun intended but it's unlike anything that we'd ever seen it was so brilliant Uh, but the electoral college Alexander Hamilton said that that was the only thing of consequence from the uh, constitutional debates, from the convention, that everyone agreed on. The Electoral College was so intricately designed and so brilliant so as to preserve the mixed character of the nation, as Madison described it. Of the four types of, you know, main federal offices that we have, the House was... Chosen by the people, and the Senate was chosen by the states. The president was chosen by electors, and the Supreme Court was chosen by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. There was supposed to be a separation of powers, not just within the government, but between the people and the government. We were supposed to check and balance with each other. And so the Electoral College was a way of avoiding the tumult and chaos, as Hamilton talked about tumult and disorder, I think was his phrase. Madison talked about the mixed character of the Electoral College, that it would be a very compound source where it would get executive power from. And so it was supposed to be a blend of essentially Congress. right? So we have the co-equal body, which is the Senate. Every state comes in equally. They all have two votes, regardless of size or population. And then we have the House of Representatives that is representative based on population. right? And the Electoral College was meant to be a blend of those two things, two votes for your state and a vote for every congressional district that you have. And it's such a wonderful and ingenious system. Now, the only thing that I don't quite like about it sometimes um, is something that I wrote about recently for the Federalist Society blog, which is that it kind of discourages voter turnout in certain states. I'm in California. I'm a Republican. My vote doesn't matter here. On the same token, Democrats in California also feel that their vote doesn't really matter because it's not needed. Some other Democrat will go cast their vote for them. And so you don't get people voting. I mean, you still get people voting, right? California has decently high voter turnout, uh, but people don't feel as passionately about it. They just kind of go through the motions. It's not like it is in a battleground state where people feel like their vote matters. And so one thing that I've thought about, for instance, is, is for every state to adopt the congressional district method that Maine and Nebraska have, which you know in the 30-something years or 28 years, I think, no, longer, 1972, 48. There we go. I can do math today. The 48 years since Maine enacted this method, right, where the winner of the popular vote in the state gets two votes, and then the winner of each congressional district in the state gets an additional vote. So it comes down to every congressional district. So in Maine, for instance, there are, are there three? How many votes do they get? I think there are three congressional districts in the state. Maybe there's only two. Yeah, there's two in Maine. So, You know, Democrat usually wins Maine. They get two votes. Maine Congressional District number one, whoever wins that gets another vote. Whoever wins Congressional District number two gets another vote. In the 48 years since Maine enacted this, the only time that a district has split was this election in 2020 and the previous election in 2016. Usually it doesn't even make a difference, right? If California adopted this today or had adopted this 100 years ago, it would not have changed the outcome of any election in U.S. history we would get, what, nine votes for a Republican out here? It wouldn't make a difference to the outcome, necessarily. Maybe every state adopted this, and, and you know every vote matters. But it would make people feel like they were more involved, like their vote mattered, uh, more passion for the electoral process. And right now, voter turnout is actually pretty good. This last election, it was upwards of two-thirds of the country of eligible voters participated in the election, which is wonderful if the people are informed and have any idea of what's going on. It seems like Maybe people are misinformed or ill-informed with the news that they, uh, that they consume, but at least it's a step in the right direction. They're informed on, on some level. That's, that's my little beef with the Electoral College. Every state would have to decide to do that on their own, or you could pass a, a constitutional amendment. The federal government doesn't have the power to tell states how to conduct their elections, um, and no state has the power to tell another state how they ought to conduct their elections. So that would be decided under Article 2 on the state level. Um, but I think that would go a long way in encouraging people to be more active in the process. But back to the Electoral College more broadly, I don't know if you have any specific questions. I can just talk and talk and talk. No,
0: that, uh, what would you right. like to
1: know more about it?
0: Why did the founding fathers not want to go with a simply democratic popular vote? What's wrong with that? That's what a lot of people, that's the argument say, right? Mm-hmm. The founding fathers did it this way, but that doesn't work anymore. And we want it. But what was their thought process to begin with? Explain that. I, I kind of understand it. But maybe explain to us why that was not a good idea, why they didn't want to follow what had been happening, you know, through history. Why, what fault did they see in that? Where were the weaknesses?
1: Absolutely. The first thing that I want to want to clear up before I get really deep into that answer is, I care very deeply about arguments, uh, about the quality of arguments being made. Whether I agree with it or not, I want people to make the best argument possible. So if someone makes an argument that we should do it this way because the founders said so, that's a bad argument. That's an appeal to tradition. But on the opposite side, you hear a lot of people increasingly today who say that if the founders wanted it, therefore it's bad and we shouldn't do it. That's just as terrible of an argument right? We should actually look into the reasons that the founders thought these things. It's not like they didn't explain this stuff to us, right? That they held meetings behind closed doors, and you had to be a part of this secret organization and know all the secret signs and handshakes. They wrote these things rather publicly. All this information is available online or in your local library. You can find this stuff. So I would recommend to everyone that, I mean, start with the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, read through the arguments for and against certain provisions of the Constitution, read through the conventional, the debates at the conventions, both in the Congressional Convention and also in all the state conventions. There's some fascinating stuff in there, and they, they walk through all of this.
0: Have you um, read all of those? Yeah. Are they easy, can, I shouldn't say are they easy to read, but are they manageable to read for those of us who are, I would not not start there.
1: I would not start there. Um, I read them before coming to law school, but I, I would definitely start off a little bit slower, you know, read some, you know, listen to maybe some trustworthy sources who can talk to you today, read some books by Thomas Sowell, who's really good at kind of coming down to the level of the people. Love Uh, Thomas Friedman's Thomas Sowell's brilliant. I hope that man lives forever. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so maybe start off with some of those things. Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Maybe read The Law by Bastiat, which is maybe a little step above that, but it's a good primer. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff that you can get into, but The Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton, if you've watched the, the level of rap that he gets into in the Broadway musical, corresponds pretty well to how verbose and eloquent he was in The Federalist Papers, right? So you you need to be prepared for that. The man was a brilliant writer, not always the easiest to understand. Madison's a little bit more straightforward. You, you can get into all of these sources is what I'm trying to say in my very wordy way. But about democracy specifically, the founders were very studied men. They looked through history. They looked at, at various countries throughout the world and what their systems of government has been. It, it's no coincidence that our country's constitution is the longest standing constitution in history. So they looked at all these systems of government and they noticed, yeah, democracy certainly has a lot of positives to it. We want to have democratic institutions or we wanna have uh, some of the, the pros of democracy without having the cons of democracy. And so they worked in a system of how can we do that because democracy is just majority rule, which depending on how the majority feels at one time or another can just be mob rule, right? Whatever the people are demanding, must happen. People will even say that we have a democratic republic, right? Because it's a representative government, but it still operates off the will of the people. That's not true either. We don't have a democratic republic, we have a constitutional republic. Mm. There's a very big difference between those two things because in a democracy or a democratic republic, whatever the majority wants, they can do. But in a constitutional republic, government shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof, and so on and so forth. Government is limited. The people are limited in what they can do under the Constitution. We have natural rights that are secured by our government. And so that's what the founders were really concerned with. Democracy, pure democracy, is also only functional on a small and local level which is why when they had an eye towards expansion, they knew this has to be a republic. But even if it were a democratic republic, that would still be maybe not disastrous, but the nation would not thrive the way that it has under a constitutional system where we certainly haven't been perfect, but we've always strived to find that equality to give people or respect people's life, liberty, and and their property. Government, again, doesn't give us those rights, but it secures them for us. We needed to find a balance between that system. James Wilson, who was a delegate from Pennsylvania in the Constitutional Convention, he was one of the original court justices. He's one of only six men to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He often spoke on behalf of the founders. James Wilson uh, phrased it that, they wanted to find the ideal blend of aristocracy, monarchy, and democracy in our system of government. Uh, They wanted to get all the pros of those three systems without any of the cons of those three systems. And so you look at the way that government is constructed with Congress, we have somewhat of a democratic institution. It's a body elected by the people or by the states. The House and the Senate operate off of, for the most part, majority rule and the things that they pass constrained by the constitution. So it's still a constitutional republic. But then monarchy, we have the president who is the executive, who's the head of his branch. He's still elected by the people, and there's still that Democratic or Republican notion of voting in free and fair elections. But you have the one man who stands at the head of the country and is the leader of the free world. That's our monarch, in a sense, right? The good of the monarch without the bad of the monarch. And then the aristocracy or the oligarchy of the Supreme Court, right? A small body of limited people who are very wise and learned, and we trust them to interpret and handle the laws properly. And respectively. You have those three institutions within our government, those three branches that were meant to reflect democracy, aristocracy, and monarchy. All of the good without any of the bad. That's what our founders were going for. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst political system except for all the others. We we all know we can't just trust majorities to tell us what we need to do. It It will end up in tyranny every time democracy has ever been instituted without those checks of the constitution it ends up in tyranny. I guess I'll finish on this, which is that Benjamin Franklin said, democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for lunch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm taking a course through Hillsdale College about the constitution awesome. because I thought I need to learn more. I think most Americans are very naive, uninformed about the constitution. And one of the things that I've learned, which I think is really great, is that part of that constitution, the way that it is built, and it's very frustrating, I'm sure you'll understand in the law, is that things move slower. But there's a purpose to that. And the purpose is so that that majority does not steamroll everything. There are channels that we have to go through, and it slows down the whole process so that calmer heads prevail.
1: We want the gears to move slowly in government. The only downside to that is when you know we have this ratcheting up philosophy, right, which is that things only move in one direction, further and further left. The government just keeps growing and growing in both its size and its scope. So that can be an issue when after you know, 100 years, over 100 years now of the progressive movement basically running roughshod over the country, not much resistance, we suddenly wake up in 2020 and our government looks nothing like what it was supposed to. How can we fix that? Well, we have the gridlock in place that prevents us from making sweeping changes to get us back in the right direction. But at the very least, it prevents us from making sweeping changes in the wrong direction, at least as we see it. And so that's good. It encourages more debate, it encourages more bipartisanship. Now, I'm not someone who thinks that the moderate answer is always the right answer, right? That all extremes are bad. Barry Goldwater said to be an extremist and liberty is no vice. There are things where we should hold fast and we should be extreme. We should be extreme in our defense of liberty and virtue and, and the rights of our fellow man. But we're not going to have a country for very long if we only operate in those extremes and we cast aside anyone who disagrees with us on any level. We have to find ways to come together. Now, one of the best ways to do that is something that the founders also recognized, which is to have a federalist system of government, meaning you have a central power, the federal government, but you also have... 50 sovereign states. Well, obviously at their time it wasn't 50, but 50 sovereign states, the United States, our country in the name itself, the United States of America, it's not supposed to be one single body. It is supposed to be divisions of government, each with its own Republican form of government as guaranteed by, I think, Article 4. And yes, we do have a federal government. There are certain things, limited things that the government, the federal government is supposed to be in charge of, but... Every state can be its own laboratory of democracy, as they say, or laboratory of republicanism would be more proper, where they can try out their own things. And Californians can live as Californians want to live, and Texans can live as Texans want to live. And we don't have to be at each other's throats all the time. I think, you know, I'm a very strong constitutional conservative. I think federalism is a much more immediately important topic uh, to push than conservatism, because right now, We're in a very heated exchange on every side, right? And not just two sides together, but within each camp, everyone's at each other's throats. And it's coming at all angles and no one can agree on everything. And it gets to the point where everyone thinks that maybe a national divorce is best. When mommy and daddy are arguing, maybe divorce seems like the only other option. Or we could just go sleep in separate bedrooms for a little bit and let cooler heads prevail and just kind of figure out who we are and what we want to bring to the table here. I think that that's really what's missing right now in the country is the willingness to disagree respectfully with each other, to respect each other's dignities, respect each other's right to try, our right to experiment and figure out what's going to be the best system. The Constitution doesn't demand that all policies look exactly this way. We need to respect our rights, but there's play in the joints. There's wiggle room there for us to figure these things out. Now. If California has more freedom to operate as California wants, I'm probably not going to like that very much. I might leave the state. Who knows? But that's just part of what it means to live in a federalist system, to live in a sovereign state. If I want to go somewhere where I feel more confident in that system of government, I can do that, too. That's what freedom of movement, that's what freedom generally is all about. We've lost that notion or we're dangerously close to losing that notion in America. We think everything has to be exactly my way. And if I think it in this part of the country, you must think it in your part of the country. No matter what your lifestyle is like, no matter what your culture is like, no matter what your local resources or concerns are all about, you have to think exactly like I do.
0: What would be a brief statement that you might tell someone who wants to abolish the Electoral College?
1: Well, first of all, Tina, I'm sure you can tell I'm not very good at brief statements. (laughs) But I will do my best.
0: What's a Uh, Facebook argument that you would make? Because you know those (laughs) always work.
1: (laughs) There you go. You're
0: always always able to convince and sway somebody to change their mind on Facebook, right?
1: I've changed my mind so many times on (laughs) Facebook. In fact, the angrier and the longer the rant on Facebook, the more likely I am to change my mind. But my response to people about the Electoral College is that The Electoral College respects the voice of the people and the voice of the states because we have to remember that this is not just a country of people, it is the United States. So every election, we're not voting as a national mass of people. We are voting as 50 separate entities and 51 because DC also votes. So 51 separate sovereign entities and the collective winner of that becomes the president. We can make reforms to the Electoral College. I'm totally up for that conversation, but to abolish it entirely in favor of democratic rule, I'm sorry, that's just not happening. It would not be good for the country. You can read all kinds of history. You can read what the founders' concerns were to figure that out, but I, I'm trying to remember which, which thought leader it was. I want to say it was Russell Kirk, but there's an, there's an old notion that the difference between conservatives and liberals is that liberals see a wall in their way and they say, tear it down. And conservatives say, why is this wall here? The founders themselves recognized that the Electoral College was imperfect. One of the first amendments to the Constitution after the Bill of Rights was to change the Electoral College because they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have the first loser, the second place finisher of the presidential election become the vice president. Maybe that will not you know, create the best of situations and environments in the, in the cap. Maybe we should change that. They did that very early on within first 15 years of the country being around, we can make reforms. It's fine. Nothing, nothing is so sacrosanct in the constitution that we can't figure it out a little bit better. Nothing institutionally at least. So that was not a brief statement. I I can't do a briefer statement. I'm sorry. The the briefer notion is respect the people and the states and we have to learn how to live together if we're, if we're going to get along.
0: That's good, I wanna go back to the Founding Fathers because there's a lot, a lot makes me insane of criticism about them, about how they were a bunch of white slave owners and I often say it's so hard and it's impossible for us with our 21st century minds to get into the mind of an 18th century person. Why should we adhere to what the founding fathers set up when they had slaves? They were hypocritical in their actions versus their words.
1: I mean, there's, there's a, so much to unpack there. Yeah. But the first thought is, we shouldn't adhere to the founders just because they were the founders. Like I mentioned earlier, we don't like appeals to tradition. Just because the founder said it doesn't mean it's right. There's a lot that they said that, that we might shake our heads at today, and rightfully so. They own slaves, and that was not a good thing. The original Constitution did not outlaw slavery. It had a couple measures in place to down a little bit, to reduce power in the South, to gradually get rid of slavery, but it didn't outlaw it. The best amendment in the Constitution is the 13th barring the Bill of Rights, maybe, but abolishing slavery was a big, the failure to abolish slavery in the original constitution is is a blight on our country, right? And we shouldn't shy away from that fact. It doesn't doom us to failure, just like every other country in the Western world had slaves and in the Eastern world had slaves.
0: It doesn't excuse it. Doesn't it doesn't excuse
1: it but at it, all. It made,
0: but we were no different from any other part of the world.
1: We were among the first to get rid of it. We fought a very bloody war, proportionally the bloodiest war in our history to get rid of slavery. It's a complicated history that we have, and it's fine to study that out. And we don't have to just put the founders on a pedestal and ignore their faults. We can put them on a pedestal uh, despite their faults if we feel that we ought to, but we shouldn't shy away from those aspects of our history. So that's one side of things. This is not the United States of George Washington. Whatever they did in their personal lives was what they wrote correct were they right about the systems of government? Is this a system best designed to secure our rights and our freedoms? It's more about the systems that were put in place than the personalities behind them. I respect the founders a great deal. I have Uncle Pops behind me of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Washington crossing the Delaware. I care very much about them. But it's not because of who they were, or it's not because of the bare fact of, he was George Washington, therefore I love him. It was what did George Washington do that made him so great? What did he say that made him so what? How did he live that made him so inspiring? Those are the things that you have to look into. But as far as the question of slavery, we also just have so much miseducation in this country about what the founding fathers actually believed. For instance, Thomas Jefferson. We all know that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. There's a lot of debate. It's never been conclusively proven that he had children with Sally Hemming, but he may have, no one knows for sure. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But to act like Thomas Jefferson loved the institution of slavery is the really asinine. It's pure ignorance on the part of most people. Uh, the, that's my one big hang up with the Hamilton musical is the portrayal of Thomas Jefferson. It's completely bonkers. Thomas Jefferson was, as Martin Luther King Jr. would credit him, one of the strongest abolitionists in the early history of this country. Thomas Jefferson put a vote on the floor to abolish slavery in the state. It failed before this constitution was ratified under the Articles of Confederation, he put out a proposal to abolish slavery nationally. It failed by a single vote. Thomas Jefferson fought to abolish slavery. In the Declaration of Independence, he strongly, fiercely condemned King George for bringing the institution of slavery to the colony. He talked about slaves being the children of God and about this crime against humanity that King George was committing. They understood these things. And then we could get into the ins and outs of it was illegal for most of the founders to sell the slaves that they had. George Washington tried to do it through his will, but it didn't work because they were given to them through Martha's dowry. And so uh, the Virginia legislation closed that loophole, which uh, Thomas Jefferson tried to take advantage of, but failed because the loophole had been closed. There's a lot that we don't know there. There's a lot of conjecture. And honestly, I'm not here to excuse the founders completely for owning slaves. They did. And it wasn't good. Um, But we have to understand not just the context of, oh, they were different people in a different time, but we have to understand exactly what they were up against and what that fight was all about. When it comes to the strong condemnation of King, and the original draft of the declaration, it was taken out because two out of 13 states or colonies at the time objected to it, which means that several southern states were on board with it. There were many, Delegates to the Constitutional Convention who objected to the Constitution because it did not strongly enough condemn slavery. There was one who refused to sign the Constitution altogether because it did not abolish slavery. The founders were very passionate about this topic. It's not that they just brushed it off. It's not that they loved it, certainly. That's the biggest lie of all. Um, It's not that they built the nation on the backs of slaves. It was complex. There are complex issues today that we're gonna to have to grapple with. And people are gonna look back and you know, whether it's abortion or the fact that we eat cow meat, whatever it is, people are going to look back and say, how, how could such a people do such an uncivilized thing? Because this was what we knew and this is what we were up against. And we had other things that we were concerned with. We're not perfect people. And sometimes we're pretty terrible people, but that's just how human beings are. You have to take the good with the bad when you're studying that philosophy and that history. I tried my best, I tried my best to be a good person. I'm trying my best to be a good person. And I think that that's all we can really ask for. The founders gave us so much more than just about any figure in history, right? I think we should pause to be grateful for what they gave us and still recognize their flaws, but not tear them down in spite of the wonderful accomplishments that they had.
0: You are absolutely right that people today don't understand or don't care can't fathom what they were going through at the time that the Constitution was created, at the time the Declaration of Independence was written. They were trying to put together something so fragile. It was so fragile, the birth of this new country. different opinions, different voices, if they had offended, that didn't want to participate, the whole thing would have come completely unglued. It would not have been able to sustain itself because slavery was a huge thing that I don't want to say they had to tiptoe around, but they kind of did.
1: Yeah, they did. Yeah, I think that's a good way to phrase it.
0: They had to overlook some of the evils for the greater good and know that that was something that needed to be tackled later.
1: And you know what's interesting about that point? It's always been taught to me, and, and, and it's a frequent argument. There was a kind of a, I don't know, in a, an epiphany type of moment. I was listening to Glenn Beck, and he said that he's not completely convinced anymore that that compromise was necessary. He's not sure, but maybe, maybe the founder should have done more, right? And he, he didn't say that they were wrong or, or right or whatever. He mentioned struggling with that idea, and it really open my eyes to see that it's okay to think about it. It's okay to wonder, could they have done more? It, we don't have to be so settled in our opinion. On the other hand, this ties back to what we were talking about earlier. It's okay to disagree with people. Reasonable people can disagree on this point. And in fact, even if I decide today, the founders should not have made that compromise. They should have condemned slavery more harshly. The union between the colonies was not as important as this crime against humanity. They should have done more. I still have to recognize these were overall very good people who were trying their best. They came to a different conclusion than I did. And I can Monday morning quarterback and tell them, you "You should have done it this way, but it doesn't make them evil for having done it differently because they tried so hard. They fought for so much and maybe they came to a different conclusion than I did. Big whoop, that's going to happen with every human being you're ever going to meet in your life. You have to make these trade-offs and they decided to make that trade-off and maybe it was right, maybe it was wrong. But even if it was wrong, that doesn't mean we need to tear down their legacy because they were still doing the best that they could.
0: I'm reading a book right now, a biography on George Washington, and I wish I could remember the author's name. It's one of the the big ones for historical biographies, but it's very fair about George Washington's personality. I love it so much because it makes me think of George Washington in even greater terms, because in spite of his faults, in spite of his frailties, in spite of the things that he did that were wrong as a person, as a human, he's the father of our country. What he did was miraculous. And because of his faults, it makes me think even more of him. He wasn't a perfect person. None of the founding fathers were. None of the great men and women who have done so much for our country No one is perfect.
1: Absolutely. People have been talking recently about Abraham Lincoln. I can't remember where it was. There was some area where they wanted to tear down a statue or change the name of of something. Um, But it was very recently, and the argument was that he wasn't sufficiently committed to anti-racism because Abraham Lincoln himself, in the early days of the Civil War, tried very hard not to make it about slavery. The South made it very clear, this is about slavery. And people say it was about states' rights, the states' rights to own slaves. And the Confederate officers themselves, the vice president specifically, I think Alexander Stevens was his name, the vice president of the Confederacy said, the whole purpose of this country is to own slaves. The whole purpose of this fight is to fight for a right to own slaves. They, they had no qualms about saying that. Abraham Lincoln in the beginning didn't want to make it about that. And I don't think we need to shy away from the fact that fact. And I think it makes it even more inspiring this man who wanted so desperately to tiptoe around slavery, like you said, had to come to that conclusion you know, halfway through the war and say, you know what? There's no way out but through. We have to tackle this issue right now. He personally felt strongly we need to get rid of slavery. He still had racist attitudes, right? He wasn't totally egalitarian in his view of Black people, but maybe not have quite the same privileges. And that's another topic that we can talk about, right? But to have him go from I'd really like to avoid this to, no, we have to do it. There's no other way we have to do it. And then he has the Emancipation Proclamation and he turned that war on its head. He turned that talking point on its head and he didn't want to have to do that, but he knew he had to out of his duty to this country and to those people. That to me is even more inspiring than a man who from the day he could speak and form a coherent thought New slavery is evil and it is my destiny to get rid of it. That's not, I mean, that's an inspiring story, sure. But to, to see that change, that transformation that happened in that man and his resolve to do something he didn't want to do, but he knew was right, to me, that's inspiring. So I think that because of those faults, like you said, I'm not adding anything new other than historical information, but your point is true. Because of those faults, it makes them more human. It makes them more real to us. And the more real a person is, the more inspiring they can be. Because if it's just some cartoon character, who cares what they do, right? That's not the real world that I'm living in. But when you see exactly what they had to grapple with and their flaws, then you can understand, I can be like that person. I can fight just like that person fought. And to me, that's, that's a much better reading of history than the alternative.
0: We're going through a tough time right now. Do you see a bright future for America? Because I on Facebook, it's all doom and gloom, and we're gonna become a communist state, and everything is gonna fall apart. Do you have a bright outlook for the future?
1: Tina, I'll be honest, I am a committed pessimist in my life (laughs) because there's no losing. You're either right or you're happy, like pleasantly surprised, right? So pessimism is, for me, the way to go. But at the same time, I can't deny that we have reasons to hope in this country. I mean, for one thing, people talk about you know a civil war being waged. We're not going to have a civil war in this country. Maybe I'll be wrong about that, but the fact that we've been at each other's throats so intensely for so long, and not just because President Trump walked down an elevator, right? Or an escalator, rather. Uh, it's not because of Trump. It's not because of Obama. It's not because of any single person. We have been at each other's throats for a long time in this country. And we still haven't come to blows yet. We still haven't totally picked up our our weapons and said, all right, blood must be shed. So that's great reason to hope. If civil war was going to happen, it would have happened already. That gives me reason to hope. Like I was saying earlier, maybe people are misinformed, but at least they're trying to be more informed. And I think that that's a reason to hope. I think people care more um, about the country and they see changes that they want to be made. People on both sides of the aisle saw what happened at the U.S. Capitol in early January and said, we can't do that. That's not how our country is going to operate. And forget the specifics of why they're there or whose fault. The fact that people sieged the Capitol, everyone condemned it. I don't know a single person who didn't. People on both sides of the aisle recognized this is not how we're going to conduct our republic. We're not going to fight each other about it physically. Uh, We're not going to Just sit around and whine all the time when we when lose or when we don't get the outcome that we want. People are becoming more engaged. I I think that there's a lot to hope for in that sense. I'm also hopeful that people will recognize, you know, maybe we're at an impasse on some of these issues, and so we should just respect federalism and let these states handle it the way they want to handle it. That was a little bit more of a stretch, but I think we can do it. Um, So I haven't totally thrown in the towel. I know that. You know, things have to get worse before they can get better sometimes, right? But at a certain point, it's got to get better. I don't know when that's going to be. As a believing Christian person, right? I believe that Christ is going to come back to the earth at some point, and we're not going to see him descend and think, oh, that was a rough couple of weeks, right? We're going to have to go through stuff. But at the end of the day, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Christ will come eventually. The Constitution, I believe, will, will still stand strong, even if it hangs by a thread, right, we will still be able to pull it back from the brink of destruction as prophets have prophesied about. At the end of the semester, I will have graduated law school, right? You you can see a light at the end of certain tunnels, and you just got to fight for it. And it's going to be dark for a little while, but you can get there. And I think that we have the tools to get there. And I think people want to get there. And that's just as important.
0: My last question for you is, what does America mean to you?
1: I mean, aside from every cliche that comes to mind when you ask that question, it doesn't make them less true. Um, But America is the freest, most prosperous nation. It is one nation under God. It is the last best hope of man on earth. It is a wonderful, wonderful, deeply dysfunctional at times place. It's like the best of any family that you can imagine. We love each other. Sometimes we hate each other but we move on because we know there's a higher purpose. We work together because we know that there's a bigger aim, that some things are more important than our petty squabbles. At the end of the day, we are a family in this country and this is a place for us to to grow and develop and learn and love and be free. America is the right for people to live their lives, uh, to be free from restraints of government, to be able to choose their own path. The only purpose of government is to secure our rights so we can live our lives the way we want, as long as we're not violating the rights of someone else. Be who you wanna be in America. I'm gonna have disagreements with you. At a certain point, you have to just learn to be tolerant of each other's choices. And America is the ideal place on earth for us to do that. You have a right to live your life the way you want to, to make your own mistakes, as long as you're not violating someone else's rights. America is the best nation that exists on earth today. Um, I'm so proud to be a part of it. I'm so grateful to be a part of it. My life, the way I want to, to be able to say, proclaim, I'm Christian. There are countries on the earth that you can't do that even today. I love this country. This country is a bastion of hope and freedom and light and prosperity. And I certainly hope that that light never goes out.
0: Where can we find you? on social media or on the World Wide Web.
1: If you are feeling masochistic and would like to hear more of my thoughts, you can find me on Twitter at Rich K Angel, R-I-C-H-K-A-N-G-E-L, Rich K Angel on Twitter, or you can see my blog, thenewguards.net, where I will write occasionally about conservative items. I also write a monthly article for the Federalist Society blog, so you can find me at any of those places. I'll probably be most active on Twitter though. So at Rich K Angel to hear more of whatever is going through my mind that
0: day. Thank you, Richie. Thank you for sharing your American story. I appreciate it so much. And congratulations on getting your law degree here very shortly. That's cool. So cool.
1: Thank you so much, Tina. It's been a privilege to talk to you.
0: If only I was as put together in my 20s as Richie. He is going places, and I know Richie has a bright future. He will make a difference in the world. You can catch Richie on Twitter at RichKAngel and his blog at thenewguards.net. Thank you for being a part of Richie's story. For more American history, join my Facebook group at American History Our Heroic Journey. Subscribe to this podcast. I have incredible people lined up to share their American stories, and you won't want to miss one. Join me next Friday for Franz American Story. See you then.